0: Uh, Good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We're going to continue this morning in a series uh, that we have been doing for quite a while now, and we'll continue probably for just about the rest of the year, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And we've come to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, in particular to Luke's version of what's very famous from Matthew's Gospel, that is the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Luke, it's called uh, the Sermon on the Plain. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. It's... uh, In your worship folder, it shows you what the the page number is in the pew Bible in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen behind me or or in the insert that was given to you. Pay attention to this. Uh, There's something that Luke is doing here as he describes Jesus going up onto the mountain to pray, coming down from the mountain, establishing his 12 disciples, and then giving to them this new teaching. It's very similar to the events uh, in the life of the Old Testament people of God where Moses the great lawgiver, went up on the mountain to meet with God, came down to the twelve tribes of Israel, and then brought his law to the people. Here, Jesus is really the new Moses, bringing a new commandment, a new law to this new people of God, formed and established by his Spirit. Uh, And so, I just want you to have that kind of picture in mind as we read together this morning. Okay, so beginning in verse 12, then reading verses 17 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray... And all night he continued in prayer to God, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great multitude, or great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is God's word. I know it's God's word because it's hard. Because it goes right in the face of so much of what we believe in our culture. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom that is different than any other kingdom. He's bringing a sphere of reign and rule that is so completely alternative and different than anything the world has ever seen. Uh, We see it so clearly pictured here in these verses. And so we have a lot of work to do this morning to understand what it is that he would ask of us, what he would call us to, and what the promise of the gospel is in these verses. And so I would just ask you, let's get right into it. And I I, I want to say we need to see three things about the kingdom that Jesus promises here that he's going to teach us about for the next four weeks as we kind of slowly work our way through this section in Luke chapter 6. And it is this, it's a kingdom first, it's an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom of grace. Secondly, it's not only an upside-down kingdom, it's a backwards-forwards kingdom. And the third thing that we learn from these verses, it's an eternal now kingdom. We have to know all three, we have to understand all three of those aspects of what Jesus is bringing in order to understand truly what he is teaching us here in these verses. It is an upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It is a backwards-forward kingdom that he is bringing. And it's an eternal now kingdom that he is bringing. Take those each in turn as we walk through the sermon together this morning. First, we see that the kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom. And that is to say that it's a kingdom of grace. Look there, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, we're told in verse 20. And when he looked up and saw his disciples, what did he see? Well, it wasn't the brightest and the best. It wasn't the cultural elites, but moral failures and social nobodies. Not the rich and the powerful. He saw the, the, the manual laborers and the working class poor. Not the spiritually fit, but the sin sick. And to this riffraff gathered in front of him, he began to say, blessed are you. Now this material is organized as a series of blessings from verses 20 through 23. And then woes in verses 24 through 26. There are four in each. So you, you see that. It's very clearly laid out for us. So blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are hungry, etc. This first list there describes a state of being. Not an emotional reality. We often use it the other way. But what, what, what this is being used to describe is not how we're feeling. The word doesn't describe a person who's happy as much as it is a person who's in a happy situation. Or you might even say a person that other people should envy. I mean that's actually the way the Greek word is used in non-religious literature. Envied are the poor. Envied are you who are persecuted, or even better, congratulations, you who weep now. Doesn't that sound a little ridiculous? When you say it that way, it sounds ridiculous, and that's the absolutely the point. And then moving foot down, Jesus begins to say, But woe are you, woe to you who are rich. And woe to you who are full now. And the woe is a warning that the people in the first list should be envied, but these people in this second list should be pitied. So we could translate this, be careful, you who are rich, or you could say, teenagers, I'm so sorry, you who are in the popular crowd. I'm so sorry. That's really what Jesus is saying. It's what he's teaching. So there's this reversal. There's this reversal that's taking place where the world says it is the rich and the full and the laughing and the like that are blessed, and it is the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the persecuted that should be pitied. That's what the world says. Jesus says the world is wrong. That's all wrong. If you're poor, it doesn't mean. That God has forsaken you. And if you're rich, it doesn't mean that God's blessing you. It's a very moralistic way to think about your life. If it's going good, God loves me. If it's not going good, he must hate me. And and Jesus is saying, no, we have to reject all of that. But even deeper, even on a more fundamental level, what we're witnessing here is an act of sabotage on Jesus' part. He is deconstructing what the Bible calls the world, human civilization and community organized in rebellion against God. The values of the world system strength and achievement. Jesus says, he looks at those same things, he says, no, those are the things that are destroying you. That the way to God is not through human achievement and striving. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It's the poor who are resourced, and the rich who are, in fact, needy. It's the weak who are strong, and the strong who are really weak, and it's those who sow in tears that reap joy. But those who sow selfishly, Trying to find happiness are the ones that end up reaping tears. But why? Why does it work this way? I mean, what is really, what is he trying to teach us here? And this is an example we have to understand. This is Hebrew parallelism in poetry. And you see this in the Psalms and the Proverbs in particular. So a Hebrew poet would often make a point, and then in the very next line he would say the same thing again, but he would say it just slightly differently. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Really what he's describing are two different groups of people. The first group. Right? The poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the persecuted. That first group are those who have no choice but to rely upon God for everything. And this, Jesus says, is the path to true happiness and fulfillment. They are the poor in spirit, according to Matthew's gospel and his sermon. And they are the ones in Jeremiah. that Jeremiah 17 passage is so So lovely where Jeremiah says the one who trusts in the Lord, he's like a tree planted by water that no matter what happens in his life, there's just fullness, there's no fear of drought, there's just health and stability and all these kinds of things. But then there's the second group, the rich and the full and the laughing and the like. And this cluster of images describes the person who lives independently of God. And Jesus says that is the path to destruction. To make that list should be unnerving because it's a great temptation to trust in wealth, comfort, popularity, and possessions and not in God. Those things turn your heart away from the Lord according to Jeremiah. And that's the danger. And look, again, Jeremiah 17 says the one who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength turns his heart away from the Lord. But what he becomes like a shrub in the desert. He lives in the parched wilderness places, the uninhabited salt land. Because his heart has been turned away from the Lord. A great illustration of this is in um, Deuteronomy chapter eight in the Old Testament scriptures. The people of God have been wandering in the wilderness for forty years, uh, but the Lord has been good to them. Their their shoes have not worn out. They've had plenty to eat. They've always had everything they needed. But it's been a hard life, and they're about to go over into the promised land. And the Lord uh, gives them a warning in Deuteronomy eight that has just really struck me. He says, "You know, I'm about to take you over there, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to. It's going to go well for you there. You're going to win battles over your enemies." You're going to inhabit their lands. You're going to live in houses that you did not build for yourself. You're going to plant. You're going to eat from vineyards that you did not plant. You're going to be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. It's going to be everything you ever wanted out of your life, but there's one problem you're going to forget me. And that's the danger. See, it's possible, it's possible to be rich. And depend upon God and not your riches. It's possible, but it's really hard. It's possible for everything to be going right in your life and for you to be grateful. It's possible. But again, it's very hard. It's possible to be well-liked. To be part of the cool kid crowd. And that not be what's fueling your life. But it almost never happens like that. It's also possible to be poor. And to not be poor in spirit. To be poor and needy, but it not... Humble you. We have to say that too. But the reason, see what Jesus, the reason the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the persecuted are blessed, according to Jesus, is because their life has been stripped of the illusion that there's anything in this world that has the power to save. They have no choice but to turn to God. And while those on the other list, the rich, the full, the laughing, and the liked, they can still do life without him. They can try to build a life on their riches or their reputation or whatever it might be, and that's a very dangerous place to be because, you see, the only way to come to God is in weakness, not strength. The only condition, the only condition for entering the upside-down kingdom of Jesus is need. Because it's a kingdom of grace, and the poor, the hungry, and the weeping, and the persecuted, they have need, and the others do not. At least they're tempted to think they do not. And that's what James means when he says, in James chapter 1, verse 9, we read it just a minute ago, let the lowly brother boast in his high position. What's his high position? What's James mean? He, the, low, the person in a low circumstance has a high position. Well, what's the high position? It has to be that he knows his need. He has nowhere else to go but God to find life, and that's his advantage. So the source of all of our problems... And the reason our lives don't work is because we're trying to find a happiness apart from God. We're insistent on living independently of Him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's what the Bible means when it talks about sin. The more independent of Him we become, the more mess we make of things. And therefore, a life that is constructed to achieve independence and avoid dependence is doomed to fail. Because two options. Either it'll work. I mean, excuse me. Either it won't work. So you'll keep trying, and no matter what you do, it won't work. Or worse, the second thing is may- maybe it does work. But you see that in the gospel, Jesus has come to undo our sin by moving through His life in the opposite direction that is our natural direction and moving away from God towards our own dependence, uh, towards our own independence and autonomy. Jesus came uh, in a complete opposite trajectory of life, in total dependence upon His Father. And that's why he can say, blessed are you who are poor, because he left. This is the gospel. Jesus left the royal residence of heaven. And do you remember what he said about his time on this earth? He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus left the fellowship of the Trinity, the eternal, ever-increasing overflow of life and love and fullness that existed between the three persons in the Godhead, and he came to a well at Sicker, and he was weary, and he said to his disciples, I am hungry, and he hung upon a cross, and in his last moments he cried out, I thirst. Jesus left the joy of heaven to become a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, according to the prophet Isaiah. And in the book of Revelation, John pictures the heavenly beings, the angels and the elders, and the living creatures bowing down in continual Worship of the lamb singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Jesus walked away from that to be insulted by stupid people who used the breath that he gave them to mock and make fun of him. That line from George Herbert, which has Jesus saying, then they condemn me all with that same breath which I do give them daily unto death, was ever grief like mine. Can you imagine what that must have been like for him? And yet he came. And what we have to make sense of this morning is this is a teaching here that flies right in the face of much of what is preached, what we might call the health and wealth gospel, which is a false gospel. Because according to this teaching, blessing is not material and financial prosperity. Our chief end is the thing we've been made for, the thing that that is where we work the best is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So therefore, blessing is the experience of maximum enjoyment of God because He's better than money. He's better than being liked by the crowd. He's better than work success. So to be blessed is to be in a situation where you have the opportunity to experience the most of Him. And so I think we ought to just go on a campaign. Can we go on a campaign that would just totally revolutionize social media? Can we change the way we use hashtag blessed? Hashtag blessed always comes after some kind of idyllic description of how wonderful my life is, right? Kids down to bed at 7 o'clock, sitting by the fire with my loving husband, sipping a glass of red wine after having shrimp risotto for dinner. Hashtag blessed. Right? Instead... I want us to start using it differently. I'd like to see somebody say this. Three-year-old woke up throwing up at 3 a.m. Husband has a big work project today and can't stay home to help. When I whined to him, he called me lazy and walked out the door. Hashtag blessed. Right? It's like a good country song. My girlfriend left me. My truck's broken down. My dog died. Hashtag blessed. Of course, I'm making fun. But that is the teaching. It is the person who finds themselves in such a situation that is blessed because their need becomes an opportunity to experience his grace. Now, the second thing, so if that's the first, the first thing is an upside down kingdom. Uh, but not only is it an upside down kingdom, the second thing that we have to know about the kingdom in order to live faithfully as citizens in it is that it's a backward forwards kingdom as well. And this is going to take a little bit of explaining. So uh, let, me, let me just try to work through this and follow me if you can, you know, as, I, as I go along. If you follow Jesus, part of the teaching here is if you follow Jesus, then verse 22, on account of the Son of Man, part of what's going to happen in your life is you're going to become poor. You'll be, you'll be hungry, you'll thirst, you'll, your life will be full of heartbreak and sadness. People will, will hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn you because your discipleship to Jesus will, will force you into situations where those things will begin to happen. With Jesus, your life will be pulled towards all of that. That's the teaching. I mean, Jesus in John's gospel puts it very simply. He says it this way, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant must be also. In other words, your life must take the same shape as my life, he says. A Christian is a Christ one. We are being remade into his image, according to the apostle Paul. Which means, of course, that there should be a family resemblance. So just as I am, and I hear it all the time, the spitting image of my father in physiological appearance, in all of my mannerisms and tone and voice and inflection, so we should be the spitting image of Jesus who became poor to make us rich. The man of sorrows, reviled and spurned by his own people, all in order to save us. So we are commanded. Commanded. Hear me? not suggested, commanded to do some pretty radical things. To love other people and speak truth to our own hurt. To sell our possessions and give to the poor. Because the whole of Jesus' life took the shape of the cross, which means the whole of our lives should also take the same shape. The cross was his destination. His telos is the Greek word. The place that his whole life was moving towards, and so it should be ours too. Because that is what it means in the Bible to be in Christ. And so let me ask a question. Let me just apply for a minute. What is your telos? What's your goal? What's the thing that you're aiming your life at? What is your specific vision of the good life? What's the picture of what human flourishing looks like that occupies your imagination? It's an important set of questions to answer because... What I'm going to try to contend, not only from the way Jesus presents things here, but from uh, some other thinking that some people have done, I'm going to contend that our lives, we live our lives backwards from what our telos is, or whatever the thing is at the end that we're aiming at. We're not being pushed so much through our lives by our core beliefs and commitments as much as uh, we're being pulled, literally, pulled through life by some telos that we desire. That's the motivational core. Of, of our lives. We imagine a certain destination, and then in our decision-making in the day-to-day, we begin to literally live into it, to be t- pulled towards it. So we live life from the backward, from the end, excuse me, from the end backwards, not so much from the beginning forwards. James K. Smith, a philosopher, or excuse me, a philosophy professor at Calvin College, he put it this way in a wonderful little book he wrote on this. He said, to be a human is to, quote-unquote, desire the kingdom. That's the title of his book. He says, some version of the kingdom, which is the aim of our quest. He's, every one of us is on a kind of Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, that hoped-for, longed-for, dreamed-of picture of the good life. And it is this, this vision of the kingdom, our own particular version of the good life, that pulls us to get up in the morning and to suit up for the quest. He goes on to say, it's really fascinating, I mean, I would recommend the book, he, he says this is not so much a set of principles, it's more, like a, um, it's more like a picture, an imaginative vision of what human flourishing looks like, our own personal version. It usually comes like in stories or legends, myths, or movies. So, uh, just to give some examples, so the picture of the good life might be, you know, maybe, maybe you were a child and when you were a child your imagination was just caught up with the little house on the prairie books. And so you thought, you know, as a little girl, when I'm grown, I'm going to, you know, have a life like this, where we all cook by the campfire and turn our own butter and stuff. You know, or maybe, maybe it's more like The Great Gatsby, right? It was just on the other end of just wild, carefree rancor and, you know, luxury. Or uh, you know, Steve Martin's uh, Father of the Bride movies were on last night. We watched them together as a family. Anybody else love those movies? Like, it's the first time we'd sat with our kids and watched them and, So we just laughed, and they laughed at us laughing and all that stuff. Uh, We watched them together. There's a scene in the first uh, first movie, I think, where his daughter on the night of her wedding turns to him, and she says, I don't want to leave. It might be something like that for you. The big, beautiful house with the pool out back and the basketball court and the driveway and all the children not wanting to leave. Uh, maybe the best example in my own life of the thing I'm trying to describe, if, does everybody, anybody else get these photos of the big family with mom and dad in the middle and there are four or five kids around them and all their kids holding the grandchildren, so 15 or 20 grandchildren and everybody's happy and of course we don't know what it was like 30 seconds before they snapped the picture, but in the picture everybody's happy and healthy and pretty and smiling and they all love grandpa and grandma so much. See, if I'm being pulled towards that telos, for example, just that, that picture, by my own desires, if, I'm, if, I, if, if, if that is the end to which I believe myself to have been created, how does it affect my decision making? How does it compete? My having to, to have my life arrive at this thing that I imagine in my, you know, imagination that I've got to have... How does it compete with the demands that Jesus makes on me in these verses? How does it seduce me to take a good thing, like family, and to make it an ultimate thing that subverts my discipleship? These are the kinds of questions that these verses lead us to ask. Jesus is trying to imaginatively help us picture a different kind of life for ourselves, a particular version of the good life. And what is hard for us is that it seems so contrary to our own versions. But listen, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor... Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, etc. When we read those words, what we need to do is in the background, in the background, we should hear him whispering, I've come that you might have life. That's life. I believe that. Lord, help my unbelief. And you may need me to believe that for you. So I'm trying to believe it for myself and my family and even for you. But let me just ask. So am I saying that what we all should do is sell everything and go live on the street? No. Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you start with this question. What's, what's your tell us? What's the picture of flourishing, of the good life that you're aiming at? Answer that question, then start to work backwards in your life, okay? And so here's where it will become challenging. Here's where it will become challenging. Underneath that, what you have to begin to ask is, am I aiming my life at greater dependence upon God? Or am I really aiming at my life, is my life consistently being aimed that I would become more independent, more autonomous, more able to control and take care of my life in my own strength? Because the mark of the person who is following Jesus is a person who, because they understand the nature of their discipleship, the shape of the gospel movement of Christ toward them, that they are now to to become a part of, they are more and more seeing their life beginning to move intentionally towards places of greater need and dependence. So can you stay in a difficult marriage? Can you take responsibility for an aging parent, even if it's hard, even if it derails some of your other plans? Jesus says that's the path to blessedness. Because it may mean you live with a broken heart. It may mean you have less freedom. It may mean you have less time or money, but it will undoubtedly mean that you will have more of Him. But there's another application, and that is that He is intent. <laughs> I wish this wasn't the case, but He is intent on doing this work in our lives, and so it is to us to praise Him when He begins. To cause us to be needy. Praise him when he humbles you. If you have a lot of money and he takes your money away. Then praise him for that. Or if he creates weakness in some other area of your life. A sickness. Or whatever it might be. It's the only way that he has to save you from the poison of self-reliance. So don't hate him for that. When God begins to work to reshape your life. Towards greater dependence upon him. Say yes. Let him. Thank him. Don't fight him. But there's one more thing. There's one last thing about the kingdom that we have to understand in order to live faithfully as citizens. in And that is that it is also not only an upside-down kingdom, not only a backward-forward kingdom, but it is also a future-now kingdom. To say it another way, that the key to your obedience to Jesus' words here is to know that the telos, that the good life that we're all searching for, is not now. In fact, it's then. You have to live now... In light of then. Do you see the way Jesus points this out in these verses? Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And it's a future tense, so so you should be satisfied then. Blessed are you who are hungry now, present, for you shall be satisfied. Future. Okay? When? Not now. Then, in the future. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh then. And there are two massive applications. And what Jesus is saying here, and I'll just finish with those. And the first is, no matter how hard we might try, if we live only for this life, if we live only for now, we will never find what we're looking for. What, what you two saying about is right. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The logic of that statement is unassailable if at the end of the day, no matter how hard you try to make a heaven out of earth, when you've gotten all the stuff you thought would make you happy, but you aren't happy. Right? If you're a non-Christian, please. You know, when you filled your life with every conceivable toy and trinket and trip, but you still feel empty. When the bank account is full, and you have all you'll ever need, but you're still afraid. There's no consolation. If you get what you want, and after you've gotten it, you're still sad, you're still empty, you're still restless, you're still afraid, then, friend, the only logical conclusion is that you were made for something else, that, that nothing in this world, that no experience in this world can ultimately satisfy. Augustine said, we are restless until we find our rest in Him. We're made for Him. And the second implication then is not to live for now, but to live for them. And this is what Jesus says. It's why we quoted, read these verses. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Not treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in. Don't live your life for what doesn't last. For what can be taken away from you. From what is there one minute and then you reach and grab it and it crumbles in your hand. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The way he says it here in Luke 6 is rejoice in that day. Do you see that? Verse 23. Leap for joy. For behold, <coughs> excuse me, your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice in that day. Don't set your heart's hope on today, on on this life, but for that day. In the same chapter of Mere Christianity, I quoted from just a minute ago. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of this other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. We have a great illustration of this from one of the sadder moments in, in our history as a people. Uh, in, the sla- in, the, in the South, during the time of slavery, the slaves would go out into the field, they would sing. And the songs that they would sing were, were very otherworldly. We some of these have come down to us in, in the form of you know, spirituals and, and hymns. They sang about Judgment Day and heaven and the crowns and the thrones and the robes that we will wear there. And in a lecture at Harvard University in 1947, African-American scholar Howard Thurman responded to the criticism uh, of many secular thinkers that this heavenly mindedness was a bad thing, that it made the slaves um, too docile, too resigned to their condition, so that they didn't fight back and they didn't fight for for their freedom but Howard Thurman argued the opposite he said that their hope of eternity expressed through song actually deep listen to this actually deepened their capacity for endurance and allowed them to absorb their suffering if now was all there is as the secularists try to tell us today then we really they really were prisoners but they knew that those they knew see those that hunger now for food or for justice those that hunger now would be satisfied then and those who weep now would laugh then And this gave them a deep abiding hope that even slavery with all its cruelty couldn't crush. And they sang. I read a story a couple of years ago about two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon just uh, just before they went to prison. One man discovered that his wife and child were dead. And the other learned that his wife and child were waiting for him. And so in the first couple of years of imprisonment, the first man whose wife and child had died, just wasted away. But the other man endured and stayed strong and walked out years later a free man into the loving arms of his family. You see, these two men experienced very similar circumstances, but responded in very different ways, because while they experienced the same present, they had their minds set on very different futures. And it was the future that determined how they handled the present. The second man rejoiced in that day. put all of his hope, all of his joy, in the day that he would finally see his family again, and it gave him courage and strength and endurance and all that he needed to make it through his imprisonment. We read this last week, That not we? In community Bible reading, Jacob worked for his uncle Laban for 14 years in order to marry the woman that he loved, Rachel. Uh, but in Genesis 29, we read, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. It's a lovely, it's a lovely line. He lived with such anticipation of joy. Uh, his then life with Rachel, his then was so tangible that it carried him through the pain and the sorrow and the worry of his now. And that's the promise of Jesus' words. If following him has taken you to a place of brokenness or brokenheartedness, if it's hard, if it's sad, if it's lonely, there's the promise of the future to carry you through. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who are persecuted, for your reward will be great in heaven. I'll tell you a scripture that's carried me through. It's from Psalm 26, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. He sends us out as those who go sowing in tears, knowing that on the other side of our sowing we will reap a harvest of joy. Let me finish by saying this, though. It really is even better than I've said. I haven't been completely honest with you. Because the promise of these verses is not just future, a future. As the Heidelberg Catechism says of perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man conceived, there's also the the confession that's there in your worship folder talks about a a promise of present joy. I mean, I love the words uh, in in the Catechism. What comfort do you receive from from the article about everlasting life? And the answer is since I already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Man, that's so good. In Jesus, the life of the future is brought forward into the present so that we can begin to experience it even now. Eternal life, eternal life is now. Eternal life, the feasting and the laughter and the reward promised in it is available to us now. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours, guess what? Yours present is the kingdom of God. Present tense. Yours is the kingdom now. You shall be satisfied now. You shall laugh now. Great is your reward now. It pushes back and we get to experience even pieces of it, even now. Now listen to one last scripture from Mark's gospel. This is a promise that we should anchor our life to, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, listen, Now, in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. For many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The age to come is almost an afterlife there. I mean, it's it's an afterthought. The The age to come is an afterthought. He says, In this time, now, you will receive a hundredfold. Jesus' teaching is this it is those who lose their life that find it, it's those who finish last that win. It's the person who chooses to live with a broken heart that finds love, and it's the one who runs towards suffering, not away from it, that ultimately finds joy. The old hymn writer Isaac Watts had these words to say. He said, and when we taste thy love, our joys divinely grow, unspeakable like those above, and heaven begins below. Let's pray together. Can we do that this morning? Father, as we continue to sing to you, even now in this song that we're about to, to sing of the, the reality of our making sense of what you have commanded us to. That we would take up our cross and follow after you. There are tremendous promises in the words that we will now sing together. And So help us to, as the scripture says, as we sing to extol and encourage one another through song. To build one another up and edify one another by looking one another in the eye as we sing these things. And talking one another into believing them. Uh, these are hard words, Lord Jesus, so we thank you of the promise that you make to us. Every single one of these uh, these commands comes with a promise. and so everything that you would call us to is anchored in the, in the hope and the promise that you are a God who loves to do good and to bless. Uh, you love to meet us in the place of our need and to provide for us in a way that far exceeds and far outstrips all of the ways that we would try to provide for ourselves in our own strength, that those who trust in you would be like a tree planted by water and so as we sing these hard words it is the call to become uh like a tree planted by water that has no fear of drought it's the call to life to take up our cross and follow you is the call to life and so lord we say we believe but help our unbelief come and help our unbelief even now in these moments as we sing we pray in jesus name and to live by faith this morning in light of the things that we've talked about is that i know so many of you because i hear your stories And I know a lot of you leave to go to places that are hard, to go to circumstances that are trying. Uh, The trick is to not, in the middle of that, to think, I've done something wrong, or God's forsaken me. But if you're at a place in your life where the only thing that you really feel like you have is to say, Lord, save me and I'll be saved, for you are my praise. That's all you can muster. Then don't think you've done something wrong. Don't think that God's forsaken you. But what this scripture would teach you this morning is... You're in a place uh, where God says, now I can go to work and I can bring my blessing to bear upon, upon your life. That's the promise of this benediction. That for those of us who are, it's good news for those of us who are poor and brokenhearted and weak. <clears throat> it's not so good news if everything else is going well. But for those of you who would say, that's me. Then receive these words as the promise. That in your weakness he comes to offer all of his strength. In your poverty he comes to offer all of strength of his resources. And in your sadness, he comes to offer all of his consolation. That's what these words mean. And so just receive them in faith this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.